Hello everyone, this is Deborah Richardson and today I am putting the AP in Happy where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. This podcast will give a voice to accounts payable team members by talking about the growing reality of cyber attacks in their world and which vendor setup and vendor management techniques they can apply to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Visit the Vendor Process Training Center to enroll in your choice of 55 plus training sessions that will help you and your team avoid fraud, compliance fines, and bad vendor data. Or just sign up to get access to Vendor Process FAQs and to attend weekly drop-in live Q&A sessions. Visit training.deborahrrichardson.com today. The link will be in the show notes. Are there any differences in onboarding non-U.S. vendors that are companies versus individuals? And how does the vendor team member fare dealing with this scenario? Hint, not as good as last episode. Keep listening. Welcome to episode 210. Is there a difference when onboarding a non-U.S. vendor that is an individual versus a company? Yes, really. So this episode is a follow-up to last week's episode, and that was episode 209, where I answered the question, is there a difference when onboarding a U.S. vendor that is an individual versus a company? Because from time to time, I get that question. And so I thought it would make a good episode. And it turns out that it was a funnier episode than I thought it was going to be, trying to explain the scenarios. And some of you may have totally related if you listen to it or will totally relate if you go back and listen to it um, and think that it's funny too, because you've been in those situations. So listen though, if you haven't already, because I think it's a pretty funny episode, but maybe you just had to be there. But anyway, in this follow-up episode, I'm going to do the same thing that I did last week, except now it's with a non-US or international or foreign um, vendors. So now what I'm going to do is go through a normal new vendor setup for a non-US vendor with an ACH payment method. So I will go through best practices of what you need to collect and what you need to do for non-U.S. vendors uh, to get them set up and what may be different from an individual versus a country, uh, not a country, but a company. And just to set the expectations here, just like I did last week, but last week I was like, "Mm, I, I answered a bit differently. Go ahead and listen if you haven't. Um, But just to set the expectation here, yes, there are significant differences from the U.S. vendor uh, 
uh, comparison between a company and an individual. And I did promise last week that AP or the vendor team um, wouldn't look so good this week, but we do have help. So let's go ahead and get started. So since both the individual and company uh, are non-U.S. vendors and you are a U.S. company, that's the example I'm using, you will collect the W-8 form series or the applicable W-8 form from that series. Now, to be clear, I know that there are multiple W-8 forms, but I am only going to use the two most frequent forms that accounts payable or the vendor teams receive when the vendor is not trying to claim a tax treaty or not trying to um, get their withholding eliminated or reduced. So it's just going to be those two main ones. All right. So starting off again, since they are both non-U.S. vendors and the company is a U.S. company, uh, they will collect the W-8 form series. So for the company, a W-8 Ben E is collected. Now, unlike a U.S. company from last week that most likely knows all about the IRS W-9 and probably had a valid one ready and waiting, you know, for the company to ask for it, um, the non-U.S. vendor is like, what? Um, who is the IRS and why is this form eight pages? Completely intimidated, uh, the vendor that is the company goes to the internal employee at your company that they have a relationship with and ask if it's really required. The internal employee, not really knowing whether the income is U.S. sourced or not, but wanting to get the vendor out of having to fill out the form, contacts AP or the vendor team member to say that the vendor should be exempt because they are not reportable. Don't really know if that applies or not, but it'll get them out of filling out the form if uh, the vendor team member or AP accepts that. Now, not to go off on too deep a tangent, but the reason I say that is because I hear from accounts payable teams all the time that they have some type of process in place. It never originated in AP it, or the vendor team. It always kind of originates like in purchasing or something. Not that anybody really understands it, but it's a question. It could be as simple as a question that they ask. Like, should you be exempt from completing the W-8? I kid you not. I had an accounts payable team member ask me that. And I was like, why would anybody say yes? And don't, doesn't AP or the vendor team get any say in that? Or don't they get to ask any questions about whether it's US sourced income? So that is out there. And that's why I use that in this scenario. All right. So the vendor has contacted the internal team member. The internal employee or team member contacts AP or the vendor team or you um, to say that the vendor should be exempt because they are not reportable. And so now we're in AP with this conundrum. Um, okay, so AP knows or vendor team knows that they need to fill out 
the vendor needs to fill out um, as a company needs to fill out the W-8 Benny, but is not quite sure about this whole, you know, exempt thing. So when they started at the company, or maybe you just recently started at the company, right? That process was already in place and I don't know. Oh, well, it must be right if procurement says so. But to be sure, they asked someone more senior on the AP or vendor team. And that person says, well, you need to have some supporting documentation to prove that is not U.S. source income. They need a copy of the invoice um, or the contract or a statement of work, something that is showing the work is not U.S. source because there is no IRS form for that. Well, that internal employee provides some supporting documentation, but the supporting documentation that they reluctantly provided because it did show that it was U.S. sourced. And so because of that, now the vendor has to complete the W-8-BEN-E because you have to determine, because it's U.S. sourced income, whether or not that vendor is reportable and or withholdable. So now you send the W-8 Ben E again and the vendor reluctantly completes it. However, they forgot to sign page eight because it was so many pages and why is there eight different pages, right? And so now you have to send it back and you finally get a valid form five days later. All right, so now let's cut to the individual. And on the W-9 side, the individual really kind of had it bad. But in this case, I made the individual one of those little smart freelancers. And so the individual, unlike the company, is a freelancer and has done this before. They send you a W-8 bin. However, they send you version 2017. Now, you didn't have this problem with the company because you already knew because that person that was senior in accounts payable or the vendor team had already replaced your electronic version that you just give to anybody that asks, right? The right version, which is October, 2021. So that senior person replaces. So whenever you send um, the, uh, W-8 forms out, you're always sending out the right versions, but you didn't have to send it to the individual because they already have one. They sent it to you. The difference is though, is that you are going to catch and require that they complete the most recent version. Unlike the other uh, clients or buyers that they deal with, they just accepted uh, the version 2017, but the accounts payable vendor team member does know that The uh, most recent version is October 2021, and the IRS requires the most recent version to be collected after the six-month grace period, which was over, I think it was April 30th of this year, 2022. So anyway, now the APT member, vendor team member, you have to send Uh, that updated version back to the uh, individual, but no biggie. Uh, The form is only one page long. Uh, The individual copies exactly what was on the 2017 version and they sign it and they send it back. Again, WA Ben is only one page. They do not have a treaty claim because I'm keeping this example um, 
less complex. So they don't need to submit the form 8223 with a W-8 bin. So now we have both W-8s back, the W-8 bin E from the company and the W-8 bin from the individual. Now let's talk about that treaty claim real quick. So hush, hush, um, neither the company nor the individual had a treaty claim. So the company didn't have to complete any of the other sections of the rest of the eight pages of that W-8 bin. Um, But the individual probably would have known that they needed to submit a form 8223 had they claimed or had a treaty claim. And so that's kind of the difference in this scenario. But get this, the AP team member, not you, because I know you know, but the AP vendor team member would not have known what to do either. They'd have been in the same boat as the company, right? Because rarely do they get training on the IRS's W-8s or really even W-9s for that matter. And just to put a quick plug in here, I do have uh, trainings on accepting the W-9s and the W-8 Ben and Benny from the from your vendors, what to look for, when to reject. And I'm going to put the links to those trainings. I do them live every month and one's on the first Wednesday of the month. The other one's on the third Wednesday of the month. I think W-8s are first on the first Wednesday and W-9s on the third Wednesday. But I'm going to put link, links in the show notes uh, if you would like to sign up, uh, you or any of your team members would like to sign up. All right. So again, rarely do they get training on that. So hush, hush, right? Don't say it too loud, but the AP vendor team member probably would not have known. Um, But the good news is that typically what I sometimes see, but always recommend is that the AP or vendor team always has a resource like an international tax professional, uh, either on your, uh, with your external audit group or maybe within your company that can review the W-8 forms received verify that they are filled out correctly and determine if they are withholdable and or reportable, especially if they have treaty claims. Because again, those can get very uh, complicated and, you know, that's, it's always nice to have that help because the AP or the vendor team does really not have time to review the tax treaty claims by country and keep up with all of the uh, regulations. And so I do recommend that that happens. And so in this scenario that did have, uh, that did happen with the AP vendor team member. And so they were able to send that off to the tax professional and uh, get a ruling, if you will, on the fact that the forms were filled out correctly and they knew how to enter them into the accounting system or ERP to indicate whether they were with uh, reportable and or withholdable. All right. So now that we have the W-8 forms and that whole thing out of the way, let's talk about tax registration numbers. So the individual first. Now the individual did have an I-10 and an I-10 is an individual taxpayer identification number and and it is issued by the IRS to foreign individuals 
that are not eligible to apply for and receive a social security number. So uh, the I-10 looks exactly like the SSN. It is, it's nine digits. It's formatted just like the SSN, except it is issued by the IRS instead of the social security administration. And so that's great because when the AP vendor team member Uh, saw that number, realized, hmm, that looks like a social security number. Didn't quite know if it was an I-10 or not, Um, but they went ahead and did the IRS 10 match and the IRS 10 match was fine. And that is good because unlike SSNs, the I-10s do expire. They expire if you don't use them for three years. And the way like buyers find out, like you would find out as a company as you go do the 10 match and it would have been uh, unsuccessful. And then you'd have went back to the individual that's a vendor and they would have said, hey, that's right. But you probably wouldn't have known, or I will definitely say that the AP vendor team member in my example would not have known that it's just because Uh, They haven't used it in three years and they just need to go and apply again. But our individual, right, is right on the ball, is a freelancer, and they've used their I-10 many times within the three-year period, and so it hasn't expired. All right. The company, on the other hand, does not have an IRS tax ID because, remember, they didn't even know what the IRS was, but they do have a VAT number and they entered it in the right place on the W-8 Ben E. However, the AP vendor team member didn't really know what that string of strange numbers um, were, didn't know that that was a VAT number, so didn't do the validation to verify that the VAT number was valid because, um, you know, they didn't know they needed it anyway really losing the opportunity to verify that the VAT number was valid and then enter it on the vendor record, which could have helped a couple of ways. One, it could have helped the tax team, right, have a valid number on file so that they could reclaim VAT paid on the vendor's invoices. Now, to be fair, they probably have a whole separate system that they're tracking that in, but it's always great to have a validated number on the vendor record as well, because the second half of why that would be good is that you could use that VAT number as um, a unique identifier for the vendor record so that you can um, eliminate or reduce the potential of duplicate vendors. Oh, well. All right. So we're done with all the W-8 bin and a tax registration. So now let's talk about banking because they are going to have an ACH payment method. Now, since both are going to be ACH, um, they both get a company branded ACH form or vendor banking form to collect the banking details. And if you are not familiar with the gazillion times I talk about why use a company branded ACH form, listen to a quick episode. It's episode 116. I think it's like 10 minutes long, but I talk about Um, the fraud prevention inherent in collecting like your own company branded customized ACH form. So take a listen to that. All right. So with the branded company branded ACH form or vendor banking form, we're going to start with the individual. So 
the individual is submitting their banking on this form and probably won't have any issues completing. But for a non-financial institution that is not in a SEPA country, and I hope I'm saying that right, SEPA, 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 anyway, um, meaning that there is no IBAN, but they have a bit code that works just like a routing number, um, but the big code works on the SWIFT network. And so the AP vendor team member will verify the big code on the SWIFT website to make sure that it is valid. And if you're not checking bank branch details, um, routing numbers for US banks and Canadian banks, and then the big code for uh, non-US banks that don't, um, that are not in SEPA countries, um, you need to do that because banks and uh, banks are acquired and they merge all the time. And that typically uh, triggers a change in the routing numbers and the bit code. So make sure you're always checking that out. So that was done for the individual. Now for the company, uh, they also have no issues, right? Completing the form. However, they are in a SEPA country and so submits an I-band on the form. And because those I-bands can be very long, right? And uh, if the company is handwriting it, right, you have to, you hope that there are no fat fingers and that you can read their handwriting. Um, and so you do ask, uh, give them the option of submitting or require even the banking uh, letterhead or the the, uh, the company's banking details on bank letterhead or company letterhead, and you're not doing it, um, accepting it on its own. It's in addition to that company branded ACH form or vendor banking form. And that is only so that you can ensure that what was entered on the form for the IBAN was correct. Like there are no um, fat fingers and that it's even if it's illegible, you can still read it from that banking uh, form or from the banking details on letterhead. All right. But now that you have an IBAN, you got a different um, problem because you can't go and validate the routing or the bit code. Now you Google some tool, right? Um, some free tool that you can use to verify that the IBAN is the right format for that country. And that's another reason why I do kind of advocate uh, collecting the IBAN on banking or uh, vendor letterhead so that you can just verify it's the right format, especially if it's on banking for uh, banking letterhead. Because if you go to Google and like, if you don't have a paid tool for it, cause there are some out there, but if you go to Google and, uh, and try to find a tool to validate that IBAN format based on country. Some of those tools are old. Um, I've had a situation, and to be fair, this only happened once, but put the same IBAN number in two different tools that we got off of Google, and one said it was valid and one said it wasn't. And so we never knew, we didn't know until you know the rejection came when we had it in the pay file. But um, just keep that in mind for those tools that you uh, that you get off of Google. We ended up after that incident, though, we ended up getting a paid tool for it. But in this scenario, no paid tool. So we Googled it. Just be careful that um, that those tools may not be up to date.
All right, so we've got the banking collected from both the individual and the uh, company. And so next, we're going to check them, the vendor legal names for the individual and the company against OFAC, right? They're their set of consolidated watch lists. And so they go to, or the AP vendor team member goes to the U.S. Treasury OFAC site. He in both legal names, just like last week with the U.S. vendors, no issues. But since they both have foreign banks, you have to check the bank's names on the OFAC list to see if those foreign financial institutions come up on OFAC's capitalist. They don't, but if they did, U.S. companies and individuals are prohibited from sending payments to foreign financial institutions on that capitalist. So the same way that U.S. companies and individuals are prohibited from sending payments to vendors on the consolidated like OFAC watch list, it is the same thing with foreign financial institutions. So if you have an international non-US foreign payee and they have a foreign institution, you're going to be checking their name against the OFAC list. Same tool, same field, same everything. Uh, and then once you check the vendor's legal name, you're going to wipe that out and you're going to put in that vendor's foreign financial institution's name and you're going to check that as well. All right. So next, last thing um, is the address. You want to validate and standardize the addresses to make sure that whatever you mail them um, and 1042 season is fast approaching. It always seems like it's fast approaching, right? Um, so the AP vendor team member tries to Google the addresses um, for the individual and the company or find some kind of resource to format the international addresses. But ultimately goes back to the more senior team member who says, hey, I had something for that. And then 40 minutes later comes back with um, some handwritten notes and then directs them to the USPS, the US Postal Services Publication 28. And Publication 28, I think it's called the Postal Address Standardization. Anyway, um, that shows the international address format that should be used when you're sending you know, something from the U.S. to a non-U.S. country. But it's still confusing because uh, the publication 28, they have the format for Canada, right? And the format for Germany. And the Germany format, though, is supposed to be for all non-U.S. countries. But ultimately, right, because it's still kind of confusing because you got that one that's supposed to be for all other countries except Canada, um, because, you know, it's still confusing. So ultimately, uh, the APT member uses Google um, and hopes that they show the right format for uh, the company uh, and couldn't find the right format for the individual because it was probably right um, a house or something. Uh, or who knows what nowadays, um, but kind of winged it for the individual. And, you know, that question will still be out there. You know, will the 1042s get there if they were reportable? 
So what the AP vendor team member could have done was treps on over to the Universal Postal Union and they have a postal code database. I forget what they called it. I have a link on my vendor validation reference list, but you go to that link to the Universal Postal Union, UPU, and all you have to do is kind of scroll down that page and you'll see where you can put the country in and then you'll be able to click download and it will tell you what that format should be based on country. But the AP vendor team member didn't uh, know that, nor did that senior AP uh, person. So that didn't happen. So again, we are still be wondering, will the 1042s get there again, if they are re- reportable. Now, what's good though, is that in the ERP, uh, lucky that the two-digit abbreviation for the country was not entered into the state field, because I see that all the time when uh, internals or when the AP vendor team member doesn't know how to really enter in non-U.S. addresses. Uh, But in this case, someone before, like three positions before, or three persons in that position before, had left some notes on how to enter addresses for international vendors, because they don't get them that often, right? And so uh, they were, the AP vendor team member was able to use those notes and enter in the uh, enter in the international addresses correctly. And that's still, you know, even though those notes are kind of old, it still works because, hey, they've been using the same accounting system or ERP for the last 10 and a half years. So, you know, that works out. All right. This was a long one. So those are the basics, the W-8s, the uh, banking, the OFAC checks, and don't forget the foreign financial institutions, and then the address standardizations. Um, And your company, though, may go a little further, especially since these are international vendors. There may be extra due diligence um, depending on the country. They may have to do some due diligence on the um, principals like the CEO, CFO, right? Again, depending on country. So it may, you know, need to go to another department. You may have to ship that off to another department, um, maybe even risk management. So make sure that if that's something that um, you have to do, that you bake that in there. I didn't put it in this scenario just to keep it uh, easier or less complex than it, you know, already was. But uh, that could be totally something that you would have to do. We would have to do that um, before we actually set the vendor up. We would collect all the required forms. And once we had them, uh, we would send them over to our, I forgot what the name of them was, but they did, uh, of that department was, but they did risk uh, due diligence, it was what they called it, anti bribery type of things uh, in that. Um, department. And then a few days later, we would get that back with the yay or nay to set them up. So if you have something like that in your, a step like that in your process, make sure that you bake it in. Now, if there's not, if there's something that um, seems like it should have been, you know, an easy thing for me to add in here that everybody does. I mean, hey, I could have missed something. Uh, Go ahead and let me know uh, right in on the comment on the platform that you use to listen on or just send me an email. I have it in the show notes. All right. So non-U.S. vendors, individuals versus companies. 
more differences definitely than with U.S. vendors. And uh, the difference really um, can be seen in the knowledge level of the AP vendor team member. Again, because we hardly have any training, right, especially on non-U.S. vendors. So again, I'm going to put my link to the training for accepting what to look for when accepting W-8s, what to look for when accepting W-9s, and I will have those links in the show notes. All right. So thanks everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 210th episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast, where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy. 